for downloading this Artist Talk, produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia for the 2016 Adelaide Biennial of Australian Art. In this live recording, artist Gareth Sansom addresses his work on display in Magic Object and reveals the narrative behind his painting, A Universal Timeless Allegory. Okay, these paintings were painted over a six-month period uh, in the second half of 2014 then into 2015. Uh, the paintings on either side of the room were painted at the same time and um, they've been altered dramatically from the white canvas where they began. Um, especially the Universal Times Algorithm which is the frame painting there, which was probably the one that kept bothering me more than the, than the others. And uh, Pope Nine, Pius Nine, that one also caused me a lot of technical problems that not only um, I'm attempting to solve creatively, but also technically, because the more you're altering a painting, well, the way I make a painting, is that you can thoroughly wreck it uh, when the paint gets turgid and if the paint is dry, you can't rework it. So it's a matter of balancing all of that, all the dangers, and taking myself to the very edge, if you like, of failure. And it's sort of like a tightrope and you, you leave a painting after five hours painting straight and then you have a drink or whatever you come back in the studio and have a last look and then you go and watch TV or whatever and you go to bed and so on and you're feeling reasonably comfortable and then you come down first thing in the morning before a coffee or whatever and you go into the room and you go, ah! oh. oh, God. Now, the Universal Times allegory painting, that was a finished painting but it didn't look anything like that and it would probably have been, by my standards, a 5 out of 10, 6 out of 10 painting, but I'm, I'm striving for 20 out of 10, and, and um, that's like one or two paintings every five years if you're lucky. Uh, if I think of Francis Bacon and his ratio of success, well, you don't know how many he cut up and put in skips, and he just slashed them with a Stanley knife, when, when, and his technique was more, much more sophisticated than mine uh, on raw canvas with the back of the canvas prepared. So he's painting on raw linen and uh, very delicate. People think of, think of Francis Bacon as somebody who's uh, a raging, crazy, drunk, drug-addicted homosexual. And did he paints like that? Well, ridiculous, of course, because if you see a Francis Bacon painting in the flesh, they're actually very delicate. Even those swipes with the sponge or old jumpers over the faces, that's very controlled. Even when he flicks a bit of paint on, that's very controlled. Now, I'm not homosexual, I'm not a drug addict, I like a drink or whatever, but the greatest problem for me is the frustration of a painting that doesn't work. Uh, Universal Timeless Allegory, I keep referring to it because it, in a way, refers back to the famous Ingmar Bergman film, The Seventh Seal, 1958. I think he made it after Wild Strawberries. I'm not sure of the chronology. 
and I saw it probably when I was 22 in the early early 60s with uh, Rob Jacks and um, George Balson. Four-hour film starts. It's a, a, an icy beach scene, a ship returning from the Crusades, and a knight and, and his valet. They come out of the water and go on the beach, and they're so glad to be back where they left ten years previously. Sorry, where they left ten years previously, and um, they're just sort of ah, so good. We're alive. We survived everything else. Up the far end of the beach, there's this cloaked figure. Can't see the face, and it's crouched over. And they're looking at him, and they wander right up the beach, and the face turns to you, and it's all white makeup, like a skull. And the knight says. Who are you? And the figure says, You know who I am. And the knight says, Oh, you're not. You're not him, are you? Yes, of course, I'm death. It's your time. You survived the crusade, but it's your time. And I have to take you. And the knight says, No, 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 give me another chance. I have to see my wife, my family, I have to see what's been going on in my town all the time I've been away. And, then, and, and, and death says, Do you like chess? So he sets up a chessboard and says, I'll play you. And if you beat me, I won't take you now. So all through the film, they're going through the moves in the chess game while that's being edited with his scenes going through medieval Europe with the, uh, the Black Plague and the burnings of the stake and everything else. It gets right back to the end of the film and the knight says, checkmate. And Death says, no, moves the thing. That's checkmate. And the knight says... Uh, you cheated! And Death says, Death always cheats. <laughs> and I said, sure, right up my spine. The very end is Death leading them over the mountains to wherever they're going. So, as, that, as this painting evolved, I was, kept thinking back to that film. I kept thinking back to Flemish painting. I uh, kept thinking about uh, Bosch 500 years ago. Bosch was painting his fabulous paintings and Bruegel, and how intoxicated I was when I first saw those paintings. So what's trying to happen, or my attempts at trying to make things work in that painting, are about, about a fusion of straight-out abstract painting, figurative suggestions, and religious, quasi, pseudo-religious suggestions, and, and uh, little allegories. The timeless allegory, of course, referred to, is referred to when people reviewed that Seven Seal film, was the idea that if you're dying, even if you're not religious, it's assumed that a lot of people might pray as a sort of a chance of some sort of saving. And that's referred to in the film. It's a universal timeless allegory because people still do that. Nothing changes. And the older I've got, and my friends in it who are no longer here, it makes me think of that quite often. And those sorts of resolutions were, were coming in as I was trying to really master the central right-hand side of the painting. Bottom left are two strange sort of figures from the time. About a month before the painting was finished, each of them had a giant penis. And uh, I thought, well, that's very provocative. That sort of might go with certain people's perceptions of my art over the years and then I thought ah oh, that's just ridiculously gratuitous so I painted them out and they actually didn't need a penis 
and um, there's sort of little echoes or examinations of what might, might be going on in that mass of figurations up to that strange, mad, goofy head, central top, and then you've got little religious personages with crucifixes down in the central right. And it's a painting that um, um, art, artists um, can make a painting and it gets shown and, and uh, I'm a professional painter and if it gets sold, you're very happy about that because it's contributing to whatever income you rely on. And then you have to separate yourself from the painting. And that painting was sold uh, about a year ago, and, um, but I can't get it out of my head. And it's not always the case with, with my art because I can just move on. The yellow painting uh, uh, called um, uh, Pius 1X, Pius 9, is, is, is really about, um, I think at the time, Pius 1X, Pius 9, he was the longest serving Pope over 30 years. And uh, he had his own army and he protected that part of Rome from invaders. And um, he proclaimed that he was infallible. And he made that Catholic law. All popes from now on are infallible. And you'll note that that's what, how popes behave now. We are infallible. We are God. But up until that pope, nobody had ever done that. Now, when that painting began, there was no Howard Arkley homage at the very top. There was no writing on it. It was a massive, out-of-control abstraction underneath the yellow, you can see. And there was certainly no religious figure in the centre. That's a sort of, certain sort of... Uh, really rather more Monsignor than Pope and, and yet when I was wiping back and trying to conjure up a way of handling that very vast space that figure re revealed itself in the underpainting when I wiped out I never saw it before because obviously it's linked to other stuff and it just seemed so right to then build the rest of the painting around that simple head and headgear and then I thought, it's Catholic. Um, my mother was Catholic. My two brothers were Catholic. My father was a Mason. And um, the two brothers were brought up Catholic. And one day when I was about nine or ten, my father was throwing a priest out of the house. And uh, I never actually found out why. But my mother stopped going to church. I was brought up Church of England. My sister was brought up Church of England and I never ever found out what that giant sort of schism was all about in our family that was never talked about. So that's the sort of little thing that was floating around in my head and also the inquiries in Australia at the moment about the abuse of children. And now Pius IX was not an abuser of children and he was a good Pope and a powerful Pope. But it was just the ideas that start coming into your, into your head in a painting when a narrative begins to appear or gives you an idea of how the painting might resolve itself. Because with all the paintings in this room, they all started as a blank canvas. There are no pre-drawings. I didn't write down, I'm going to paint a painting about a Pope or Ingmar Bergman. 
or Miss Piggy's uh, brush with mortality, or the split, or the one down the end that I can't give you the title because it's five lines long, but it's from Shakespeare's Richard III. I didn't have those ideas, they're blank answers. But after painting for 60 years, my first oil paints were 60 years ago, um, and an iconography that's been building for all those years, the, the ideas flow in a random uh, madness almost, a stream of consciousness. And a lot of those doodles, if you like even, turn into figurative little clues. And when I come back to them, there's sometimes a, a eureka moment. And that you, it, it gels, you see it for the first time. You could be painting the area for like two days and not see that little spark that you could build on next time you see painting. But you have to go away. Uh, a writer called Anton Ehrenzweig, he describes that moment as re-injecting re re yourself, or re-retrojecting yourself, I can't think of the word, back into the frame of mind you were last in when you were at the painting. And uh, uh, if you understand those concepts, um, and you can get a bit smart with it, of course, because then it turns into a contrivance. And once you're contriving, the spark's no longer there. The book that describes this process a little bit better probably is um, Kersler's book, The Act of Creation, where he says the Eureka moment is exactly the same when you laugh at a comedian's joke or when Archimedes gets into a bath and the water raises up from one smudge to another and suddenly he realises how he can solve how much gold is in a crown or on stage an actor is interacting with other actors the play, the scenery, the theatre, and you. So that sort of is bouncing around. There are also little eureka moments there. Um, I would love lots of these moments. Like when a doctor, sorry, a scientist, is falling asleep and he's got this problem he's grappling with and he's staring at the fire. We've all done it. Was it barbecue or whatever? Nodding off after your red wine. And then serving that days. And then you see snakes eating each other's tails, or their own tail, spinning around in the fire. And a man invented DNA, or he said he did, from, from that moment, that little eureka moment. Act of creation, Arthur Kirsten. It's a must, I think, for anyone wanting to understand the creative moment, the creative spark. The thing, the thing that, that painters love, or especially I love, because, um, I mean, I like all sorts of art. Um, I'm very gregarious. I love somebody who can, can draw something up and impeccably paint it. It's, it's, it's brilliant craft in a way. Um, I can't work that way. For me, for me, it's the delicious surprise when something jumps up and grabs me and leads me back into it. And, and, uh, and I love mobile phones because they jump up and grab me too, um, when I least expect it. But, but sometimes they can be a eureka moment as well, which is, um, um, you know, Broadway is good for your mobile phones, apparently. But anyway, anyway, the triptych, which is, which I, was, I sort of had that painting finished, and it was in an exhibition curated by Francis Lindsay in 2014, um, called uh, Liminal Narratives. 
But the central panel was totally different. It was a finished painting. It's been exhibited. It's in catalogues. But I had it home. And then this show was evolving and these four pictures were finished. And I kept thinking, ah, oh, I've seen that wall. That it would be really good if I showed that liminal narrative painting again. And then I basically realised it couldn't really compete in quality terms on these four. So I totally repainted the central panel so that the, the figure is much more dominating and I put in the psychedelic stripes and so forth to give it a real optical buzz. And uh, it might be a cheap trick, but, but it gave that painting something that it didn't have in its previous form. Now, the title, I was thinking of Richard III at the time, but not via Shakespeare. I was thinking about how they found his body under a car park or whatever. And they, 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 um, they'd examined it, and I've seen it on Foxtel or History Channel or whatever, and they've got the bones laid out. And he's nowhere near the hunchback that Laurence Olivier played in, in the famous film where he's seducing Claire Bloom in a room where, where um, um, Laurence Olivier is sort of, sort of like that. And he's like, it was not like that. It was not like that. He had slight curvature of the spine. And in his battle, battle dress and armour and helmet and everything else, you wouldn't have even noticed it. And they say... They say that the wounds are battle wounds and then when he was down, they stabbed him in a private place as a sort of a desecration and, and that was part of his demise. But he died bravely and he was nowhere near the scoundrel that Shakespeare was performing propaganda for the parliament of the time. Everyone reads Shakespeare and they say, oh, Richard III, hunchback, nasty, killed the, the, the two in the tower, da 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 da. None of that's true. So I had this book when I was thinking of those thoughts, all Shakespeare's plays. I will open a page at random in the book. It could have been any play, any Shakespeare play. I open the book, put my finger down. A real data device, by the way. They did this stuff all the time, surrealists, you know. So I just wanted to be a surrealist for a day. So, <laughs> so I opened the book, put my finger down, and it's in the middle of Richard III. The ri in the middle of Richard III. And then the, the title, which you'll read after this, I thought, my God, that refers to me. People think I'm this when I might well be that. And this, this was the fantastic... Four-liner, and, and I thought, that's got to be the, uh, it's got to be the title. I didn't want a two-page Dale Frank title, but I thought that, I thought that, that, I thought that title would just about maybe uh, help me with the painting that ended up being Richard III, proudly with his either chainsaw or electric guitar, setting off vibes into the 21st century, and um, a, a quote from Coldplay there somewhere, and a few other things. And, and um, it doesn't have a, a, an intelligent, intellectual, rational explanation, this painting. But I've done my best with it for you. <laughs> um, now, now um, what am I? 77 this year, and what is that? 80 in three years, 13 years, 90. And fair way to 105, but... But, but um, it, it does make you think about um, 
you've got to use the time you have, you know, and, and time is very, very precious. I paint every day, usually at dawn. I don't paint at night too much now, you know, because I don't have the energy then. But when I'm at my sharpest, the best decisions are made. I never paint drunk. I never, never paint um, addicted in any way to anything. And just try to, try to uh, have the radar up, always uh, the antenna, always hoping for, as you've written over here, something that will surprise me and give me, give me energy to go on with that painting and the painting that might come afterwards. Um, and there you have it. I reckon Shakespeare would call that a superb soliloquy. That was brilliant. No, he would have says, said, it is what it is. <laughs> I, I think you have all, probably all of the answers to any possible questions. That was, that to have the opportunity to, for an artist to unpack a painting, if indeed that's even possible, and I think that's the existential conundrum that we've just had, and you're constant trying to surprise yourself uh, and, and find something new. It's, um, that was really fabulous. Thank you very, very much. It's been such an honour to work with you. Gareth and I walked these rooms, when was that? Chicken like a year ago? August, there you go. It wasn't that long ago. And we talked about how the, how the room would work. This is certainly an exhibition within an exhibition. We, we kind of planned everything together, the placement of the works, the colour of the walls, the ceiling, whether it would be open or closed, the resonance of the floor and the walls. The floor is painted. The walls are painted exactly the same colour as the floor, so that there is a kind of uh, an implied void, if you like. Uh, and as you also are well aware, as well as the central panel of the triptych adorning the book, Universal Timeless Allegory has been something I can't get out of my head either, or the marketing team, because it's appearing everywhere. <laughs> We've even wrapped a tram with it. And I'd like to say thank you to you for that because that's been, you've been very, very generous in allowing us to so, use I this. I'm very gen generous by nature and I approve, <laughs> I approve basically everything that was sent to me except the cookering, cookie, cook, cooking apron. He's joking? He's joking. across the front. <laughs> and, and we are uh, handling barbecue tools. <laughs> sausages on the burn behind me. <laughs> Brilliant. Can you join me in thanking and congratulating Gareth Sampson?